listeners, we're back. Tech Policy Grind has had a long, relaxing, well, actually not very relaxing summer and fall hiatus, but we're back, and if I'm honest, and being modest with you, better than ever, and excited to bring you a batch of new interviews with tech policy nerds for all you tech policy nerds and aspiring nerds out there. This is Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. My name is Emery Roan, and every week, oh yeah, that's a thing now, we'll be releasing new interviews and conversations with folks working at the intersection of law and technology. We'll talk about the fascinating work that they're doing and the lessons they learned along the way. This week, we're starting things off with an interview with an FTC commissioner. We were so, so lucky to talk with Commissioner Rebecca Slaughter this year at State of the Net 2019. Listeners from last year may remember that State of the Net is an internet policy conference held each year in Washington, D.C. by the Internet Education Foundation, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry's parent organization. Over the next few weeks, we'll be releasing more interviews from State of the Net where we talked, honestly, quite a bit about privacy. It's kind of a big deal this year. We also talked about platform liability, the California Consumer Privacy Act, and, well, the state of the internet in 2019. This week, though, we talk about things I know next to nothing about, which makes it all the more fascinating. Commissioner Slaughter tells us what it's like to go through a government shutdown, and we get a lesson on vertical and horizontal mergers. Basically, are we thinking about the harms properly when a Google buys a WhatsApp don't at me? And are we holding these big mergers to account after the fact? Antitrust law, it turns out, is awesome. We also, of course, glean any career lessons we can from the commissioner who has some tips on how to find not just a mentor, but a champion. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes if you like the show. It really means a lot, and it can help us make this show a sustaining feature of the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. So sit back, or keep doing what you're doing. Keep hustling. It's 2019, or 2020 if you're listening to this long after release for some reason, and in which case, thank you. You keep doing your thing, too. And enjoy a conversation with Commissioner Rebecca Slaughter at State of the Net 2019. Thank you for joining me, Commissioner Slaughter. Thank uh, you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Absolutely. So just a little bit of background for our listeners. Commissioner Rebecca Becca Kelly Slaughter uh, was sworn in as Federal Trade Commissioner on May 2nd, 2018. So for all of us privacy fans, just a year and a week or two shy of GDPR day. Yeah. So a lot has happened in the past year, but prior to serving on the commission, you served as chief counsel to Senator Charles Schumer of New York, where you advised him on legal comp competition, telecom, privacy, and consumer protection and intellectual property matters, among other issues. Um, and our show is actually a, I like to describe our show as a sort of show for tech policy nerds and the nerds that aspire to be in tech policy. And so we'd love to focus a little bit on everyone's background and their academic and professional careers. So sure. I would be remiss not to mention that you had an anthropology undergraduate degree and received your JD both from law, uh, sorry, from Yale Law School. Um, and while at Yale, you served as the editor of the Law Journal. Yep, that's correct. So I attended your fireside chat earlier. You got to really kick off State of the Net 2019 this year. You know, it, it's a little awkward because I had attended it and had all these questions in my head, and then Alexi from Bloomberg got up there and asked basically all of my questions. Reporters are the worst. Oh, and especially the <laughs> With good their ones. questions. The good ones, too, you know? Um, so in a lot of ways, I think that this might be a bit of a rehash over some of the fireside chat topics we talked about earlier. Um, but... 
I am also going to borrow from him and introduce by talking about the shutdown. Yeah. So I heard from Kristen um, in your office last night or yesterday, finally, um, because of the shutdown, everyone was out of the office. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what that was like? Or Yeah, it was the worst. Yeah. I mean, it was terrible. It was uh, practically bad for our work. Basically, all of our cases, all of our investigations had to stop. Uh, we lost time that we're never going to get back, and we're going to be digging out of the hole for a while. But on top of the practical problems that it created in our work, I had a, I'm had really upset, and I continue to be really upset about the message that it sent to the civil servants throughout the agency who do their job because they love their country and they want to help protect American consumers, um, and they want to go to work. They don't just work for the paycheck. They work because they love what they do, uh, and they should be able to have the dignity of their work, and it took that away from them. And then on top of that, the paycheck issues are real. Yeah. Uh, many, many people, including many government employees, live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and so taking away two of them created actual material financial hardship. And that's just the government employees. On top of that, there are all the contractors who work in and around our building who aren't going to get back pay, uh, and they're suffering. They're, they're generally the lowest paid people who can least afford to miss a paycheck, and I worry that they get overlooked in the conversations about it. So I, there's just sort of level upon level upon level of problem, and uh, I really hope that the administration takes those things seriously Knock when we come up on the next funding deadline. Yeah. Uh, on the practical side, in your office, in the agency, were there a lot of empty desks? Were yeah, you still was, going in? Yeah. So I went in every day. The commissioners weren't furloughed, uh, and a few staff were in the office to work on a few matters that we call accepted, mm. uh, which means they're accepted from the Anti-Deficiency Act, so uh, people could work on them because they involved uh, imminent risk to property or some other legal obligation, and mostly in this case it was court deadlines uh, or courts saying that we had to keep working. So uh, I was in, for the first week, a very empty and very lonely office. I did, I will admit, I caught up on a lot of reading that has been sitting on my desk that I've been wanting to do for a while and hadn't had time to do. but. It was very lonely, uh, and then I had a few staff who came in to work on accepted matters, and that made me feel much better and less lonely, but then still very much missing the rest of my team and the rest of the teams throughout the building. Yeah. Uh, the feeling yesterday when everybody came back to work was really, uh, I thought, very sort of jubilant, and I mm. felt very much like the FTC reminded me of my Jewish family because everybody sort of dealt with their feelings with food. Everybody <laughs> brought in food, right? There were like four it's different a people. Moment. That's it the is. Best feeling. It, there were four different people who brought in pastries for everybody. There was pizza lunch that the commissioners and senior staff served to the whole staff of the commission. So uh, I just want to put a time out on that just for all of our student listeners out there that are aspiring to the FTC. You can, in fact, still get pizza lunches in the FTC. It's so true. It's one of those things to look forward to. And you can have it served to you by your commissioners and your senior staff, oh, and man, people will feed their bowl. feelings. Uh, <laughs> so it felt it was I was in an extremely good mood all day yesterday just because I was so happy to see everyone back at work. So I guess I know that you can't speak to the specifics of the case uh, or any cases, but, um, you know, 
I'm not sure if I'm projecting to our listeners uh, when you spoke about you know losing time on investigations. I think the one that me and or that I'm concerned most about, and I think a lot of folks are concerned about, is the Facebook investigation. Without speaking to that, you said that you know there are um, you know you've lost time that you can't get back on some of these investigations. Could you speak to the impact that a government shutdown has on these kind of investigations? That it, you know, especially these big ones? Yeah, and look, I will say, we have two publicly confirmed investigations right now, Facebook and Equifax, that's very unusual. We generally don't publicly confirm our investigations, so it makes sense that people would be interested in the ones that they know that we're doing. Uh, this is a situation where, frustratingly, the public generally doesn't know what they don't know, so you don't know about the hundreds of other investigations that are going on involving companies large and small on an ongoing basis, all of which basically stopped. Uh, and so coming back from that means not only picking up where we left off, but trying to deal with any developments that happened in the interim that we couldn't triage on a daily base, any basis, any new information that came to light. Uh, it's more than just, the cost is more than just 35 days lost. The cost is, it's sort of an order of magnitude of that because you have to, they're, they're sort of scaling effects that happen. So it's bad. It's just, I mean, I can't say it any other way. It's very bad. It's very bad, listeners. And <laughs> just repeat that very over bad. and over again. So one of the things that has happened, however, since the government reopened on Monday, the FTC uh, approved the merger of Staples, Inc.'s parent company and another company called Ascendant Incorporated. Uh, you dissented to that, however, in uh, a dissenting opinion that I recommend everyone to read. Um, you spoke about your concerns with vertical mergers. So for some of our listeners that aren't aware, I was hoping first we could talk a little bit about what a vertical merger is as opposed to a horizontal merger is and sure. why we should be more or less concerned about those. Sure. Why are we in or geometry land <laughs> with math terms? Uh, so did law and tech policy to avoid that. I'm <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so traditionally, when we think about mergers, we think about what is known as horizontal, two companies on the same, um, in the same markets who compete with each other. So I'm, you can't see, but I'm gesturing in a horizontal <laughs> line the way they compete with each other. Um, and, and we think about what effect that will have on competition in the market where those companies compete. Vertical mergers refer to companies that don't directly compete with each other, but are at different levels of a supply chain. So either um, one company supplies directly to the company that it's buying, or is supplied by the company that it's buying, or as in this case, um, and I'm going to see if I can articulate this clearly, uh, Staple Ascendant is a wholesale office supply distributor that supplies mostly independent resellers and Staples competes with those independent resellers for the business of uh, small businesses, for the office supply, providing office supplies to small businesses. So uh, Staples and Ascendant only minimally directly compete. They're more at different positions in the supply chain. Okay, so you could, for example, say like a Facebook acquiring WhatsApp would be an example of a more vertical merger because sure. Theoretically, WhatsApp isn't competing directly with Facebook. Sure, generally. right. They might. You might argue that they were competing on messaging, particularly. Right, but right. Facebook is more of a platform, and WhatsApp. So, that, so yes, it would be sort of where there are different positions in the supply chain, not in direct competition with each other. And as I understand it, generally the idea has prevailing idea has been that you know there are clear harms from horizontal mergers. There are 
less clear harms from vertical mergers, and your your dissent was, I guess, pushing back against that sort of prevailing idea. Yeah, I would say that the the idea for the last thirty odd years has been that there are. Uh, clear and understandable harms from horizontal mergers, and that not only are the vertical harms less clear, uh, but also that vertical mergers come necessarily with some benefits, some affirmative benefits, what we, the antitrust term is efficiencies. Okay. Um, and that would mean, you know, one that's cited all the time is uh, if a company is at integrated into the supply chain, it's going to capture pro uh, only a single profit rather than profits at the upstream level and the downstream level. So ideally, that would reduce the end price to consumers. That's the theory of okay. how it works. Is that not, I mean, <laughs> I am clearly not an expert in any of this stuff, but that that feels like counter to competition? Well, the, the argument, and I'm not the best person to make it, but the argument is that uh, when you eliminate, when you have some of those efficiencies, you can result in lower prices for consumers and or better product, right? Better innovation, better output. So those are things that antitrust law generally wants to support. And, and they may apply in some cases. I'm not saying that they aren't real, there aren't potential benefits. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that we shouldn't accept those benefits as necessarily true or specific to the merger and not something that could be achieved by contract or as not having other anti-competitive effects. Um, and I think that we have an obligation in the enforcement side to look carefully at the claims of benefits and ask um, parties to really substantiate them. So I guess when you are talking about substantiating those claims, what does that look like? So, so in the law generally, we require the parties with access to information to provide the information, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want the party, anyone to have to prove a negative or prove something about someone else's behavior when they don't have the best access to the information. So the parties to a merger are in the best position to say, here's how specifically this merger will benefit consumers. Here's where we will cut prices. Here's where we will cut costs. Here's where we will um, increase output. Here's how we will do it. They tend to say, or in many cases, they say, we will do these things, or this will have you know, a billion dollars in cost savings, and that's an efficiency. But I think we need to make sure that they're not just, they're not, uh, in sort of the teacher words, they're uh, showing their work in addition to just telling the outcome. Are there practices or policies in place at the FTC to do those kind of retrospective investigations, or given, like, I guess, a precedent of doing those kind of retrospective investigations? Yeah, well, so let me back up. So the efficiencies point I'm making is sort of in the first instance of mm, an investigation. Okay, okay. What my dissent yesterday said was, first of all, we have to be more, um, we have to treat the harm seriously. Secondly, we need to be skeptical about efficiencies. And thirdly, um, if there's a close call case where we don't have, we have an intuition that maybe there's some anti-competitive harm, but we don't have the evidence to prove it in the moment, we should commit at the time of the merger to to the fact that we're going to go back in a fixed number of years and take another look, do a retrospective and say, uh, did we make accurate predictions about how this integrated company would behave? Uh, was our analysis correct and our conclusions correct? And if not, do we need to take some corrective action uh, to fix any anti-competitive effects or any anti-competitive conduct that may have resulted from the merger. So um, those are sort of three different 
three different steps. Right. Uh, the last point, retrospectives. Yeah, there re merger retrospectives are a real thing. It's not a not a concept that I made up. I wish I could <laughs> take credit for it. Um, and they've been done historically. Uh, they're usually done comparing a merger to a control group, uh, like a merged company to another similarly situated company that didn't have a merger. And that's not exactly what I'm advocating. I'm advocating sort of an internal retrospective where you compare what happened after the merger to what you expected at the time of the merger would happen. And at a minimum, what that will allow us to do is hone and improve our analysis. I don't think we should be afraid to say, we got it wrong in the past, or this didn't amount to an anti-competitive merger, but our predictions were still off. Let's take a lesson from that and make better predictions going forward. Trying to figure out the most tactful way of phrasing this as well, because um, there's a whole bunch of privacy advocates out there that have spoken to the concern that the FTC hasn't demonstrated the will or the ability, I guess, to crack down on privacy concerns and data security concerns. Um, I, I guess for one, I'd love to just hear your opportunity to respond to that, um, and you know, your thoughts on where the commission or where the agency needs to go and what can be done to sort of help that happen? Yeah, so I will say anytime there's a gap between what uh, people expect of an agency and what the agency actually does, you have to figure out where that gap is coming from. Mm -hmm. And to me, there's sort of three main potential causes. A lack of will, as you alluded to, a lack of authority, and a lack of resources. Um, I definitely think the latter two apply here. We have a lack of authority, uh, we can't do rulemaking as a general matter. We can't issue monetary penalties for first instance violations. Um, and our law doesn't actually directly address privacy issues. Right. Uh, so we have to sort of find creative ways to get to privacy problems, and that's a real challenge. I would love us to have more authority on that respect. And I think a lack of resources is a real and meaningful problem for us. Our budget is too small to grapple with the kinds of economic challenges and problems uh, that we have in today's modern, technologically infused world. So those two things are really true. Uh, as to the lack of will, um, what I will say is I think the FTC has worked hard to do the best it can with the resources it has. But with respect to this particular slate of commissioners, I'd say we're probably in like the second act of a five-act play. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't draw any conclusions today about what the end of that show is going to look like. Right. Uh, we absolutely should be judged on our merits and on what we do. Um, I think I think there is across the board interest in being as effective as we can. And I think it's up to us to demonstrate that that's what we want to do. So on that front, I know that, um, you know, there's a lot of talk this year, I guess, around the possibility of a sort of federal privacy bill. Um, some privacy advocates have proposed putting the privacy enforcement responsibilities on the FTC, and others are calling for the creation of you know, a whole other agency specifically devoted to privacy, a privacy office. I was wondering if I could sort of feel your temperature on that. Is, you know, is privacy an issue that is so big that it should be in its own camp, or do you think that the FTC, if it was higher, you know, better resourced, better staffed, would be the best agency? I, I think the FTC is absolutely the best agency. I think creating a whole new agency is not particularly efficient or effective in okay. this in this realm. Um, 
it's more expensive. The FTC has a lot of experience with the law, with the courts, with the kind of companies that we're dealing with. That said, I also understand that if we want more authority and more money, we have an obligation to demonstrate to Congress and to the people that we will use it effectively and responsibly. And so uh, that's, like I said, I think we're in the second act of a five-act play on that, and so stay tuned. But um, I do think the FTC is where it belongs, uh, and I think with more authority and with more money, a lot of the concerns and problems that people have expressed will go away. Thank you so much for those answers. I want to totally jump to a different topic as before we wrap this up. And like I said, you know, our show is about the legal weedsy tech policy issues, but it's also about trying to help young folks and aspiring tech nerds getting into the tech world um, in the tech policy world. So thanks to the magic of LinkedIn, everyone can now dive into the personal and professional and academic lives of everyone that whose jobs we aspire to. So, um, of course, I was perusing your LinkedIn, and um, I, you know, I couldn't help but notice you know, the really quick turnaround between the end of law school and going right into the government. Um, it was like a year between finishing up at Yale and then... Yeah, so I have, I have, I mean, it's a little bit lengthy, but I'm happy to tell you I have a sort of an unusual backstory. Oh, please and I do. Will, and I will back all the way up. So when I graduated from college, I thought that there were, I was an anthropology major, mm -hmm. as you referenced. I thought there were three careers that I might like to have. Uh, the first was being a professional stage manager. I worked in um, technical theater all through college, and some of the people I worked with have gone on to be very impressive and very successful, and I thought, you know, this is a job I'd really love and mm -hmm. could do. Um, or I thought I might be a preschool teacher because I love kids and particularly little kids. Uh, or I thought I might enjoy being a lawyer. And when I looked at those three careers, I thought if I actually liked being a lawyer, that would probably be the most um, financially comfortable or you know stable life for me. Uh, so perhaps I should see- By the way, just to set the context for the year, this was in 2009? 2003. Oh, 2003. A little Sorry. older. Sorry, no. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, that was when I graduated from college. So I went and took a job as a paralegal at the Manhattan DA's office to figure out how I might really feel about law. I was always interested in public interest law um, and government. I actually thought I wanted to be a public defender, but thought I would look at the DA's office to see the other side. If I wanted to be a public defender, I thought I should understand the other side. So I went, I loved my job at the DA's office, I loved the law, and what I took away from it is that I didn't actually want to do criminal law as either a public defender or a prosecutor, that it was too hard and too emotional, and that my concerns were sort of structural and systemic, and that what I would prefer to work on is criminal justice policy. So when I went to law school, it was with the thought that I would go uh, work in uh, some sort of policy making or legislative role. And I actually ended up spending my 1L summer working for Senator Schumer in his DC office. And what was supposed to be a summer turned into a year because uh, the summer I was there was the summer that Justice O'Connor retired from the Supreme Court um, and then the Chief Justice died. And so all of a sudden we were facing two Supreme Court confirmation hearings in a very short period of time. And Senator Schumer's chief counsel at the time, a man named Preet Bharara, uh, said to me, hey, I'd really like it. I worked directly for him, and he said, I'd really like it if you stayed on and helped with these things. And I was like, okay, twist my arm. That sounds <laughs> terrible. Um, it was, in fact, wonderful. I really loved it. I spent a year there and then decided I had to, and I loved working for Chuck. I loved working for Preet. I decided I had to go back um, and graduate so I could start paying off my law school debt um, and not just be $60,000 in a hole with a third of a useless degree. Uh, I also thought I would like to know more about the practice of law. I was not someone who only went to law school because I liked policy. I cared a lot about the practice. So when I graduated, I did go to a law firm. 
Um, and I learned a lot, and I was not a person who hated the work of the practice of law like a lot of people, but spring of 2009 rolled around, I'd been at the law firm for about a year, and all of a sudden Democrats were in the majority in the White House, in the House, and in the Senate. And when I had worked in, on the Hill before, the Democrats had been in the minority in the White House and the House and the Senate. And so I thought, well, this sounds more fun. Like winning is more fun than losing. Being in power is more fun than not. Um, so when they offered me a council job, I took it. I sort of thought I'd do a few years and then go back um, into, uh, into private practice or some other law practice, um, and then I just ended up staying because I like the work so much. And the other story that I will tell is when I took that job, I said, what am I going to be working on? Like, what is my portfolio going to be? And they said, well, we're not really sure yet. We're sorting it out. We're having some, you know, a bunch of staff turnover. So, but don't worry, it'll be totally fine. You'll like whatever it is. And I said, okay, but I just really don't want to be stuck doing like boring regulatory stuff like <laughs> telecom and IP and antitrust. Like, I just don't want to do that as long as it's more interesting than that. And they were like, oh, no, it'll be fine. Uh, and of course, that was the portfolio I ended up with. And what I learned over time um, was it was the portfolio that I loved. I thought it was really interesting. I thought the work was really important and material to real people, but it was less combative and less ideological necessarily than some of the other things I worked on over time, like gun control. Um, and, and other much more partisan issues. So I really liked that, and I liked doing the work, and I learned a lot um, and was really happy to stay and both excited and sad to leave when the opportunity came up to go to the FTC. So that's a lengthy story, but I tell it because I think it's important for particularly young people to be open to different experiences than are exactly what they think that they want totally. and be flexible with their plans. Um, it also tells, you know, it shows the importance of these connections that you build early in your career. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I take that I take that seriously from a mentoring side too, right? I wouldn't be where I am at all without people like Preet or other uh, people I worked closely with over the years who really helped me figure out what I liked doing, what I was good at, um, and where I could make a difference. Yeah, honestly, I think that's my biggest advice for anyone that I can ever meet. If you can find an a mentor, if there's someone that is willing to mentor you, like latch onto that person, never let go, <laughs> yes. and like soak up everything they can like a sponge. And what I would advocate actually is look for not just mentors, but champions. Yeah. I heard someone articulate that difference huh. recently, and I thought it was a really good point. So a mentor is somebody who will just teach you, but a champion is someone who will really help boost you and help make introductions for you and help you um, uh, advance the way you want to throughout your career. And that those people are there. They're available, and um, they're important to have in your corner. So you graduated from Yale after being on the, uh, the law review. What other... I'm trying to think, how, how, what advice can we give to young folks that are trying to find their champions? I mean, I think the best advice is to be exactly who you are and not try to put on a front that you think someone else wants to see. What I look for is um, sort of genuine, thoughtful, curious, engaged people who want to learn more than want to tell. I think the other mistake young people sometimes make is they want to prove how good they are. Um, and that's great, but actually, particularly early in your career, 
it's great to be open to what you don't know and interested in learning new things. Um, I had an intern once on the Hill who I asked to make a binder for something, I, I think it was like a Supreme Court hearing, really important. And I was a little, I'm a little bit neurotic about how I like things organized. And so I'd asked for tabs in a particular way. And this kid looked at me and rolled his eyes and said, um, I went to private school. I think I understand how to make tabs. And oh I was like, God. great, thanks. You're not gonna be getting any more assignments from me. Um, but the people who are like, great, I love it and I want to make the best tabs you've ever seen. And here, <laughs> and here's another idea about how to do it differently. Taking that initiative is really terrific. And people notice and they care about it. Um, and I and I think if it's genuine and it comes from who you are, that's exactly the best thing that you can put out there. Well, Becca, Commissioner Slaughter, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been an incredible conversation. I think that uh, a lot of folks are going to enjoy it as well. So. Thanks. I really appreciate you having me. Right, thank you so much. Okay, bye. This has been an episode of Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. We're a collection of early career professionals paving the way in the tech policy world, and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you just heard, it would be a huge help and mean a lot to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. If you don't have iTunes, maybe just share the show with a friend. We want to thank Ali Sternberg for producing the intro and outro music for the show, and thank you all for listening. So, until next time, thanks. <laughs>